That's what he did back then, and that's what he does up to now. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We hear the voice of Jesus today calling to us, come, follow me. Good afternoon. I'm trying to remember last time. Was this? Okay. I, I didn't think this was here last time. Okay. Well, good to be with you all again. This is nice. <laughs> all right, well, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. I've entitled the message, God's will for you daily thanksgiving. This is going to be a little bit of a topical message today. Uh, but this is where I get my title from, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for this church. We know that the church was not built by man's strength and ingenuity and power, Lord. You're, you're the one who builds your church. I thank you, Lord, that you do not leave or forsake your people. I pray, Lord, that you would be ever so near to us. Now we need you. We're not here relying on man's word or power, Lord, but yours. So I pray, Lord, that you would come down and help us, quicken our hearts, help us to receive and believe your truth. Help us now in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I was able to go to Venezuela. Uh, there was a little church there who was hungry and needing help. And so they wanted to start uh, meeting together, functioning as a church. And so they were requesting help. So I was able to go. So I booked my flight from San Antonio to Orlando to Bogota to Venezuela. I'm not sure how many of you all knew I was able to do that. But I spent the night in Orlando, and I woke up super early, made sure my flight was in the morning, like 11 a.m., made sure that I got to the gate, as stated in my ticket, at the right time. I was hours ahead of schedule at the gate. And so I did what many of you might have done, just relax, distracted myself, put in those earbuds, and something happened. Close to the boarding time, I look up, start gathering my things. Boarding time is is now, and I'm looking around, and I'm hearing that everybody around me is speaking English. Now, this is a trip to Bogota, Colombia, so I immediately thought something's not right here. I look up, and it said Dallas. So, of course, <laughs> this is not the, I don't know how big the Austin airport is, but San Antonio airport is not very big. This is, this is a big airport. I had to take a shuttle to get to the correct gate. So I'm being instructed, and I'm frantic. I'm running. I get to the shuttle, 
And then I realized this isn't it. I was supposed to go this way. So they're, they're telling me, no, you got to go this way. And so by the time you know it, of course, time is flying by. And I'm 30 minutes past my departure time, not even the boarding time, the departure, supposed departure time. So I'm thinking, this, this is hitting me because for me to have missed this flight would mean that I have to reschedule for the next day, which would mean that I would not be at the first service Sunday morning in Venezuela. So I was crushed, discouraged, disheartened, particularly for the people there who were greatly anticipating me being there. So they tell me you should go to your gate because the Spirit Airline uh, flight attendant was at one of the shuttles and said, your flight has departed. Go to your gate and reschedule. So disheartened, I start walking to the gate. There's nobody there at that gate. There, there's nothing on the sign on top, nothing. So I'm kind of like this, just hanging my head. And then after about maybe 40 seconds, a lady comes out from the tunnel. Bogota? I said, yes. She said, come, hurry, hurry. I said, no way. Like, I was in total disbelief. Everything in me flipped. I mean, I went from, of course, like I just said, disheartened, discouraged, crushed, to overwhelming, rejoicing, and thanksgiving. You can imagine. I step onto the plane and the first thing the, the lady tells me, another flight attendant says, I'm so sorry, the only seat for you is all the way in the back. And I just cut her off. I think I just told her something like, you can put me anywhere. Like, I'm just so thankful that I am on this plane right now. You have no idea. <laughs> so let me ask a question here based on what I just said. Why was it that I had this response when this flight attendant was saying that the only seat for me is the worst seat in the back. Why was it that I was so overwhelmed with joy despite that information that she told me? Why? Answer, it was because I was ever so aware, ever so aware that I could have, would have, and should have missed my flight, see? Who was at fault? I was at fault. I was the one who was distracted. I was the one who put those earbuds in and missed the announcement, right? I should have missed my flight. But God had mercy. And so, I want us to think about Thanksgiving today in the context, in the backdrop of what could have would have and should have happened. I want us to remind us this afternoon of what should have happened to each one of us because of our sin. You deserve, I deserve, we deserve to miss our flight, so to speak. But God is merciful, and many of you are on the plane, the plane of salvation. So the hope is that this would stir in us a desire and a thanksgiving for us every day, which is God's will for you. I don't know if you guys sing that song, Your will, Lord, your will, if you guys have heard of it. Your will, Lord, your will, how I long. No, probably not. We sing it a lot in San Antonio. But that will right there is a discerning will, trying to figure out what is God's will for me. 
Well, First Thessalonians chapter five verse eighteen leaves no debate. Like this is not like try to figure out if you should grumble and complain today or give thanks today. No, this is clear. This is God's will for you daily. Thanksgiving. All circumstances, it says, you have, you encounter circumstances every day. And so, I want us to think about this. <laughs> all of humanity, everyone here, and all the billions of people in this world could be separated in two categories, right? The believers and the unbelievers. The godly, the ungodly, right? The, 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 the believers, the, the, the righteous, the unrighteous. Uh, how about this? How about the thankful and the unthankful? Many don't, have, don't think about that when those two categories are mentioned, but think about this. The reality is that for those whom the Lord has worked out and is continuing to work in a thankful spirit, they are in the category of the godly. And I'll seek to develop this further. Those who are characterized by grumbling, complaining, are in the category are of the ungodly. So this is a well-known passage, but I want to maybe highlight something that maybe is not as, as much considered. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So notice here, it says ungodliness and unrighteousness. You see, there's a distinction there. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I believe verse 21 is developing the ungodliness. So the ungodliness that was mentioned in verse 18, I believe Paul is developing that in verse 21. They are filled without honor and without thanks to God. And then verse 24, therefore, because of their ungodliness, verse 24, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And further on, you have more unrighteousness. So, again, there's a distinction between ungodliness and unrighteousness, meaning they don't, do not mean the same thing. Ungodliness would be the attitude, the disposition that we have toward God, and unrighteousness refers to sinful, specific actions. Now, yes, there is an overlap between the two. Ungodliness and unrighteousness go hand in hand. It's, it's much like faith and repentance. You cannot have one without the other, yet they do not mean the same thing. Ungodliness is essentially what we see here is not living as though God is not present. Just ignoring him. Living a life basically void of thoughts of God, seeking to glorify and honor God. That's ungodliness. Note that the ungodliness in verse 21 is what led to the unrighteousness in verse 24. So I want to just quote something that Jerry Bridges said. He, he wrote a book. It's called, um, uh, what was it called? Anybody know? <laughs> um... I forget the name of the book, but that's okay. It's a good book. Respect, uh, Respectable Sins, I think it's called, yeah. Okay, he says this. I believe 
that all other acceptable sins can ultimately be traced to the root sin of ungodliness. To use a tree as an illustration, we can, we can think of all sins, big or small, growing out of the trunk of pride. But that which sustains the life of the tree is the root system, in this case, the root of ungodliness. It's ungodliness that ultimately gives life to our, our more visible sins, meaning even pride, he believes, the root of even pride is ungodliness. Even though pride, we can say, is the root of all other sins, he believes that ungodliness is even the root of pride. So I'd like to consider, this is what I want to do for the remaining of the time here, and I'm not going to get through it all. I know that we have a shorter time today as well, but I want to get through as many as I'm able to, a list of ways that describes our state, B.C., before Christ, or in other words, before the plane took off, when we thought we missed the plane. So before Christ, in our state after Christ, God intervenes, and we're on the plane of salvation. So this, is, this list that I'm about to mention, it's not an exhaustive list. There are many more that you can likely think about. And this list is not in any particular order, but let's dive in. Ways and conditions that God saved us from, what, what we were and what we are now as the category of the godly or the believers, right? Okay, first, from enemies of God to friends of God. Does the Bible teach that people are enemies of God? Or is it just, just maybe, maybe just like the hit, Adolf Hitlers and the people over there that do all kinds of things like animal sacrifice or children sacrificing, these things like that. Those, those are maybe the enemies, but not, not the vast of mankind, right? Well, James chapter 4 verse 4 tells us very clearly, friendship with the world is equals to enmity with God. Okay, so you love sin. You, 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 through 17 tells us what loving the world is. And if you are not in Christ, you are loving the world and loving your sin. And therefore, you're an enemy of God. Well, people like to say, they love to say, maybe in your evangelism, you talk to people and they say, everyone has their own personal relationship with God. And who are you to tell me anything? Because I have my own personal relationship with God. Well, what should we say if they say, if, if and when they say that? I tell them, amen. That's true. You're not indifferent. You don't have like no relationship with God. You have a relationship with God. It's a personal relationship with God. But are you an enemy of God or a friend of God? Those are the options here. You are an enemy or a friend. You are not without a relationship with him. But if you are his friend sitting here today, you weren't always his friend, right? We were in our B.C. days shaking our fists toward the heaven, toward God. Romans chapter 8, we were hostile toward him. Psalm chapter 2, the nations rage, the people's plot in vain. We should enter into that. That was every single one of us, conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Why? Because all of our efforts, our strength, our power, our energy, our resources, all of it, <laughs> go into, it'd be like me, Jonathan Sanguinetti, taking everything that I can, have, I can take and just going up in arms with a country. Just me by myself against this country. 
I mean, that, that, that's even not even comparable with what we're dealing with here. Because we're not talking about a king or a country or even the universe. We're talking about the king of kings. He who holds the kings and the kingdoms and the universe by the word of his power. That's who we're talking about here. Psalm chapter 7, if a man does not repent, meaning if you're still an enemy of God, you're still going up in arms against God, God will wit his sword. He has bent and made ready his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows of fiery shafts. Well, maybe this is just the Old Testament because we're talking about the Psalms. We haven't heard anything in the New Testament. Maybe, maybe that doesn't exist anymore. Maybe everyone's friends of God now because it's the New Testament. Luke chapter 19, verse 27. This is the New Testament and Jesus speaking. He says, as for these enemies of mine, enemies still exist here, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Enmity with God. That is our critical condition before him. And despite our hostility toward God, according to Romans chapter 5, we went from being enemies to being reconciled, having peace with God, being enemies to being friends, despite what we rightfully deserve. What mercy. When you really, really, really think about it, what mercy that God reached down and did something to our critical condition and didn't leave us. And now we're on this plane. Friendship with God. So the next time you have somebody at work, a coworker, or, or any, anyone else that's coming up against you and you think, oh, these guys are, they're my enemies. Well, guess what? Remind yourself that though the world and anyone and everyone else in it is in, is in enmity with you or at odds with you, remember that you have peace with God despite anything else. Praise God. I'm going to skip a couple of these. We're not going to look through all of these. I'll go to my next one here. We were deaf, and now we hear. John chapter 8, verse 43. <laughs> Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Romans eleven eight, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. People all around us, they're unable to hear the truth. They're unable to hear God's word. But remember, that was us as well. Something happened, right? Just like what we see in, with Jesus' miracles, opening the eyes of the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, that's what Jesus does. That's what he did back then, and that's what he does up to now. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We hear the voice of Jesus today calling to us, come, follow me. He says, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. We hear the voice of Jesus saying, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. We hear the voice of Jesus in a more real way, a profound way, a more tangible way than, think about this, even they heard thousands of years ago when he was literally walking around and speaking and they heard it with their physical ears, but yet they didn't hear 
See, we didn't hear with our physical ears the way they did, and yet we hear. Amen? We hear the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus that says, the words that I speak is spirit and life. He speaks them, and we hear them through his spirit, and we have life. So the next time you hear things that maybe provoke your anger, just remind yourself that you can hear and may that point you to the spiritual reality that you could hear, right? You can hear things right now. Is anyone deaf here? If you, if you are deaf, you probably can't hear me say that. We're, we can all hear, right? Praise God we can hear. So if something happens and maybe it's the, the, the chalkboard and, you know, they, what, that squeaky noise and you don't, ugh, it hurts my ears. You're going to get so angry and bent out of shape. Or you're going to say, ah, oh, thank you, God, that I can hear in the spiritual realm. Praise God. All right. Here's another. We talked about some senses. I didn't talk about the sense of sight, but that's okay. We're going to skip through some. But here's another one. From heart of stone to heart of flesh. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Hardness of heart. They have become callous. We understand what a callous is, right? I have calluses here. Okay, I pinch myself and I'm okay, but you pinch myself in some other tender part, it's going to hurt, right? What's the difference? The callus you can't feel, right? Hardness of heart, can't feel. What, what, what can you not feel? You, you can't feel the things of God. You can't feel your sin. You don't feel it, right? You have no sensitivity toward it. Hard of, hardness of heart, callus. And sensitive toward God's word. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I, this is God. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He doesn't just take away that stony heart. He doesn't leave you heartless. He, he gives you a heart of flesh. He replaces the heart of stone. God ripped it out, that stony heart. And he gave us a heart that's sensitive toward God. Now we have feelings towards his word, towards him, towards sin. He caught, sin causes us to feel godly grief, like 2 Corinthians chapter 7. At most in our worldly, uh, before BC, before Christ, we felt worldly grief, right? At most. But, but there's a vast difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief leads to life. Worldly grief leads to death. There's a vast difference between the two. Now, think about this. If we knew we had a heart condition and we needed a heart transplant in the physical realm, and we knew that we needed that transplant or we would surely die, we would rejoice we would jump for joy at the thought that there is a heart for us. But brethren, again, we have new hearts. And this surgeon is not like any surgeon here on earth. No surgeon here on earth can guarantee total success. But this surgeon does. Totally successful. And not just to add some years, a few years to your momentary fleeting life. No, we're talking about eternity. 
That's the transplant that this God is involved with. He is giving you a new heart that will last you forever. We all feel different things throughout the day, and we have different things that might cause us some physical pain. So the next time you slam the door in your fingers or anything else, and you want to jump up and maybe feel a certain way and think a certain way that's not right, remind yourself that you can feel. Remind yourself that God gave you feeling in the spiritual realm with a new heart. Okay, well, here's another one. <laughs> From natural person to spiritual person. First Thessalonians, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I can recall after a church service in Laredo, there was a man, he was a visitor, and I had the opportunity to speak with him about the gospel. And we had a good open door. I had good amount of time. And he was attentive. He was listening. And I was just trying my hardest to be as clear and as simple as I could with the gospel. Justification. How we can be right with God. And he was shaking his head. He was attentive. And he was seeming to agree with everything I was saying. And I was trying to give him opportunities to speak, and he finally spoke, and he said, I agree with you 100%. You are so right. And I'm realizing that I just need to try a little harder, do a little better, and I hope that at the end, God will let me in. I said, how are you going to tell me, I don't know if I told him like this right now, but how are you going to say that you agree with me when I didn't say that at all? That was the opposite of what I was saying spiritually discerned. They're they're not capable. Romans chapter 3 says they don't understand. They do not understand. 1 John chapter 2 verse 20. Despite all of us naturally speaking not being able to understand the simple things that God is explaining to us in his word, despite that, God does something. He gives us understanding. First John chapter 2, verse 20. But you, there's a but, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. How do we have so much knowledge? Because we're so smart and intelligent. We're better than them because we just understand. Because we're just smart. No, he is the one who anoints us, and we have knowledge. He opens our eyes. He opens our ears. He opens up our minds. To understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I quoted that earlier, but now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that we have the mind of Christ. We have understanding, it says. And so, if the Spirit of God, mark it down, if the Spirit of God does not give you understanding, you will not understand. You won't. So, the next time that you're frustrated and bent out of shape at work because you can't understand a certain thing, or maybe you're in school and you can't understand a mathematical equation or whatever, just remember, though you can't understand this, you understand the simple, basic things of the gospel that really, really matters. Eternity. You understand the gospel. Another one. From not my people to sons of the living 
God. We were the uncircumcision. We were separated, alienated from Christ, um, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We were the ones far off. We were strangers. We were aliens. Now, when we talk about aliens, we're not talking about like the United States of America right now where tons and tons of aliens or illegals are coming in. They're coming in illegally. We're not talking about that. Anyone and everyone that comes into God's kingdom will not come in illegally. That's not how it works. So being a foreigner, an alien, meant being excluded from all the blessings of God as his nation. You're not a citizen. You're excluded from the blessings. But now, there's a but now in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We can enter in. And we do. We are now citizens and members of the household of God. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. We are entering in. We enter in to his country. His, we are citizens in the most important country, in his country. So the next time that you're excluded, maybe because of, we're talking about citizenship from a country or, or excluded from anything else, just remember, though you may be excluded from a lot of things here on earth, you will never, as a Christian, be excluded from the most important kingdom, the most important country, his kingdom, right? From dead in sin to alive together with Christ. Following the course of this world, you know this, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Being dead, being dead in sin, it means that you're incapable. It's not possible for you to do anything good. What did Jesus say? He said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. There's not one thing that you can do without him. Meaning, you're incapable of producing fruit or doing anything good. Like Lazarus, unable to raise himself up from the grave. If it wasn't for Jesus calling him, Lazarus, come forth. If it wasn't for Jesus calling each and every one of you, come forth, you would have stayed in that grave, hopeless. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We have no hope outside of God's effectual call, but God does call, and he does call effectually. Being alive. (laughs) There's a song, I don't know if you guys have heard this one. Um, goes, I'm so blessed, I'm so blessed, got this heartbeat in my chest. Very simple song, but it's just talking about being blessed. Why? Because we're alive. We're alive. So next time you feel your heart beating because you're running around, you can feel your, your heart, you just 
pause and think. I'm alive. I'm alive. And let that, again, point you to the spiritual life that we have in Christ. From slaves of sin to free indeed. We know this one, John chapter 8, verse 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Being a slave to sin, it's not like forced slavery. We understand forced slavery. You don't want to be a slave, but you are a slave because you were forced into it. You were sold or whatever else. Being a slave to sin is not like that. We love sin. Being a slave to sin means that you love sin and you would rather be nowhere else but serving your sin master. We're slaves to serve our sin master. And think about this, the more time passes by, the more you hear the preached word of God, the more you read, the more time passes by, the more heavier those chains get. The more tighter it feels. The more time passes by, the more desensitized you get, and the more hardened, heavy, and tight become the grip. Think about this. We talked about AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and can free you from the chains. Alcoholics Anonymous cannot free you. Covenant Eyes can't free you from the chains. Accountability Partners won't free you from the chains. Simple church attendance, it won't free you. Pastor or having a pastor here, it's not going to free you from the chains. I help uh, James and I'll be honest with emails. Uh, I get some, some of those emails, and a lot of those emails, believe it or not, uh, I don't want to say the percentage, I don't know, it's a high percentage, they start talking about how they're just enslaved. And a lot of those, they'll say, I, I, just, I just need to get to Paul Washer because somehow, some way, he's going to help me with this, right? Like he has this secret code and key to help you. No, Paul Washer cannot free you from the chains either. No human institution, nothing, no, no power that we can muster up can free you from the chains. Jesus Christ steps in and he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's the only one who can say that. He's the only one who can say that about himself and he will do it successfully. He will free you from the slavery of sin. From lost to found, Luke 19, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 10. We're okay on time, I think, for, for now. Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We're lost. We need to be found. Right? There was a pastor friend of mine in Mexico. He got lost. Um, Pastor Tim mentioned him in a prayer meeting a few years ago in San Antonio. <clears throat> Turns out he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped by the cartel. He was in the back of a truck, blindfolded, and there was others that got picked up along with him. Now, that's another story how he got there. But you can imagine, 
He was in great terror. He had great desire to be found and to be rescued. Now, there are many people, there are a lot of loved ones that he had, and they were all frantically looking for him. They were diligently seeking him, but to no avail. They were unsuccessful. But this God who seeks the lost, if he's coming to seek you, he will not be unsuccessful. He will find you. Just ask Paul. He will find you. Whether you're looking for him or not, wherever you, whatever you're doing, he's going to stop you in your tracks and he's going to rescue you. He will leave the 99 and he will search out for the one. We all went astray. We all went our own way, lost in sin. But praise God, we are now found. The times in your life, because I'm sure it didn't just happen to me in that airport that one day. I'm sure it happens to each and every one of us some way. Maybe not that bad, I don't know. But you get lost in directions, right? Going this way and that way. And you're just, you're lost, you're frantically trying to find your way, and you realize, I'm just so lost right now. Just remember, though you are lost, you're found. Right? Let that frustration just remind you of the reality that Jesus Christ found me. I'm found. From poor to rich. Maybe we'll just do two more. <laughs> From poor to rich. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pity, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. We understand what it means to be poor, right? I mean, we don't understand it maybe like other countries do quite so much. When you're poor in extreme poverty in other countries, unlike this one, you don't have access to the most basic necessities for life, food, water, clean water, shelter, clothing. You don't have the things that you need. A lot of people say, I need this. My kids say, I need some candy. You don't need that, right? You want it. These are the things that you need for life. That's what it means to be poor in many of these places. And guess what? Though you may have come in here with the nicest car and have the nicest job and everything else, you could still be poor, flat broke, bankrupt, more than a lot of other people that have a lot less in the physical realm. Why? Why would you be so bankrupt if you have so much in this world? Because of what Jesus said. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole entire world? Have more than Musk and have more than Gates and have more than anyone and everyone else combined. Yet you have nothing. You are flat broke in the spiritual realm. You don't have the things that are essential for life, right? But, but, but something happens here. God is in the business of making poor people rich. That's what he does. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
You may be spiritually broke right now. I don't know each and every one of you, and if you're broke here today or not. You may be spiritually broke and bankrupt, but Christ is in the business of making poor people rich. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He doesn't just sprinkle it. He lavishes it upon us. His riches upon us. 2 Corinthians 6, 10. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What is this? How do you have nothing and then possess everything? How does that make sense? Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, maybe this explains it a little bit more. I have learned in whatever situation, again, 1 Thessalonians five eighteen. we started off with this, whatever situation, Right? That's what he said in the beginning in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Right, Whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what we're talking about here. So even if one day you end up and extreme poverty. Again, resist the temptation of grumbling and complaining. And let that remind you that though you are poor, yet you are rich. We should promote that we preach the prosperity gospel. Right? We preach the prosperity I don't. I don't want to go into a rabbit hole or, you know, chase a rabbit there, but um, the, the world and the false doctrines, they, they, they take things that are true by name and they mix it in with a lot of garbage. So the prosperity gospel that Jesus talks about is the abundant life that he wants to give to us, which is what? Eternal life and with the riches that we talked about in Ephesians and all, all the scripture that we talk, that we see very clearly. He wants us to be rich. <laughs> Amen? Amen? All right, we preach the prosperity gospel just to be clear here. But it's the riches that we see in scripture. Christ, the treasure. We talked about the treasure some other Sunday ago. The treasure of Christ. Okay, last one here. From poorly clothed to clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Revelation, again, Revelation three seventeen. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, well, there's been times in my past, not in San Antonio or in Texas, but I'm thinking Colorado, maybe New York, where I've been inappropriately clothed for the weather, right? We're not talking about protection from bad weather when we say we need to be clothed differently. We need to be protected, not from bad weather, but from the wrath of God. We need appropriate clothing. Matthew 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a serious thing to not have the right attire. The reality is, if we had been left to ourselves, if God does not intervene, we would be with our, holding on and clothed in our supposed righteousness, our own clothing. But God in his mercy didn't leave us there. He got us on the plane of salvation and he clothes us. He doesn't just take out the filthy garments. He clothes us with his righteousness. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the, angel, before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing by before him, Remove those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and will clothe you with pure vestments. Again, he doesn't just take that filthy stuff out and throw it away. He doesn't just leave you there naked. He clothes you. And it's the righteousness of Christ that he clothes us with. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin for our sake became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ, of God in Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. So the next time maybe you're not clothed right and you feel tempted to complain because you need more clothing or whatever else, just remember that you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now I have more here, but I want to I wanna just conclude with, with, with what I have those with that list that I have. I think I mentioned eight or nine <laughs> different things. But you can come up with more. There's so many things to glory in and how God saved us from what would have, could have, and should have happened because of our sin to where he takes us to because of his mercy and grace. Now, I want to think about unbelievers here for a moment. A lot of what I talked about is reminding the believers, but I also want to think about the unbelievers because if you remember, I mentioned the godly and the ungodly, right? Unbelievers are in the category of the ungodly, the unthankful. So my question to unbelievers is why do you think that you're so void of, unthank- uh, void of thankfulness? Why are you void of gratitude toward God? Well, there might be several different reasons, but one huge reason that we could point to is that you don't really see your sin for what, it, what you deserve, what your sin deserves, right? You don't see or you don't see the extent of God's work in salvation and him saving us, sending his only begotten son to save sinners. And if you don't see and understand and believe that, then you can't be saved. And if you're not saved, you're not going to be overflowing with thankfulness and gratefulness that you have eternal life, that you're going to never perish, that you will not be thrown into the lake of fire because you're not saved from all that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and the second death is the lake of fire, which you and I rightfully deserve. At work, I, you know, just in your everyday life, you greet people and you say, how are you doing? They ask you, how are you doing? Well, at work, a lot of times, 
I say, well, sometimes I say, I'm so blessed, I'm so, like the song, I'm so blessed, I'm so blessed, got this heartbeat in my chest. Sometimes I sing that. Or a lot of times I say, better than I deserve. Any one of you guys have said that one before? Well, there's been a couple of times and one more recently where a coworker kind of, kind of like, you know, wanted to um, pin me down and rebuke me and really lay it to me that I should not be talking like that. And so he tried to explain to me how wrong and messed up it is that I said that, right? According to my coworkers, we deserve, I deserve the good. I only deserve the good. Why would, you say you de- why would you say that better than you deserve? What do you mean? So I tried to explain to him, because of my sin, you know, kind of try to explain a little bit about that. And it just seemed to go in one ear and out the other. He had, it, he just went back to, that's wrong. You should not be saying that. So, all that to say, if you do not see your sin for what it deserves, then how can you be overflowing with thanksgiving? You, you think you only deserve the good, you're not going to be overwhelmed with thanksgiving. So, I guarantee you, this man who, who was rebuking me for saying that, I might not know him very well, because I go to different clinics, I don't see him all the time. I might not know him real, really well, but one thing I do know that I can guarantee you about this man, based on what he told me, this man is not overflowing with thanksgiving and gratefulness toward God. He's, he's not. And, and why, why would he? I mean, if he deserves it all, why would he be as much, No. So think about it again. When I was the last passenger on that flight, on that plane, I felt in a special, unique, personal way God's love and his mercy toward me and his care and love and mercy toward the people in Venezuela. I was blown away by what God, what God did at that moment. I was humbled. I felt extreme gratitude and thanksgiving. But think about this. If, hypothetically, I had been that day at the gate before anyone else, and I dotted my I's, crossed my T's, I did everything better than the next person, how do you think I would have responded if the flight attendant told me, the only seat for you is all the way in the back? Do you think I would have responded exactly the same? There, I'll confess there might have been a temptation for me to complain if I'm in the middle between two big guys, and I have barely any space, and there's babies crying all around me, and they didn't offer me the complimentary pretzels or whatever else. I might might be complaining, or at least in my mind, thinking, why why would they do that to me, right? Again, (laughs) that's the difference between realizing what would have happened and and when God intervenes and when there's a different outcome. If you are an unbeliever and you're filled with thank, you're void of thankfulness, your natural response is you deserve the better. When you're not thankful, you're not thinking of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's allowing you to breathe another breath, your heart continuing to beat. You're not thinking about the countless blessings that your body 
does on a daily, on the moment-by-moment basis, your blood flowing, just every, all the ins and outs of your body working. You're not thinking about that in gratitude toward God and thankfulness and seeking to glorify Him. You're not thinking about that if you're filled with um, grumbling and complaining. More than that, if you're thankless and godless, you don't see Christ as he who knew no sin for your sake became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But Christians, we know the reality of going from having the wrong wedding garment to being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. In the spiritual realm, we went from having nothing to having everything. So unbeliever, here's a question. If you're here or if you're hearing this, here's a question. Will you remain with your deception and cling to the lie that you deserve better and at the end being thrown into the hell that you actually deserve? Or on the flip side of that, will you humble yourself and realize you don't deserve that? You don't deserve the good. And then at the end, be ushered into the heaven that you don't deserve, right? Which one will it be? Well, the latter is going to result in a journey striving for more and more thankfulness. That's what the latter is going to produce, right? And so, while we're on this side of eternity, let us strive every day for daily thanksgiving, which is God's will for you. I can say that because the Bible says it. This is God's will for you, giving thanks. Amen. Father God, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your people. <clears throat> Lord, we, we know that we're utterly helpless without you. If you don't keep us, Lord, but you, you promise that you will. And so we, we, we base our confidence not on our abilities, but on yours, on your promises. Help us now. Help us as we <clears throat> leave here and, and before that take the Lord your your supper, Lord, that you told us to remember you. Please help us. Help us to remember your word in our day to day.